Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we're excited to welcome best-selling Chilean-American author Isabel Allende to Secrets. Isabel was a hit author right out of the gate. You might remember her debut novel, House of Spirits, which was turned into a film with Meryl Streep, Glenn Close, Antonio Banderas, and Jeremy Irons. Since then, Isabel has written 24 books and sold more than 74 million copies around the world. That makes her among the highest-selling Spanish-language authors ever. Isabel has a new book out called The Long Petal of the Sea, which tackles the themes of immigration, love, and home. And she's here to talk to us about all of that, what it took to start a new career in her 40s, and how she's kept it going into her 70s. Thank you for joining us, Isabel. Thank you for having me, Veronica. It's my pleasure. So let's start off by talking about your new book, A Long Petal of the Sea. How would you describe it for the listener? It's a a love story and a story of displacement. It's a story of a couple. They are refugees from the civil war in Spain in 1939. They come as refugees to Chile, where they have many years of a good life. And then there is another, there's a military coup in Chile, and there's an, again, they have to become refugees for the second time. So it's a a story that goes in a circle. Mm. This immigrant and refugee story is, and this experience is very personal for you, right? So you moved from Peru to Chile when you were a child, and when you were a young woman, you had to flee to Venezuela during the coup in Chile in 1973. How did those experiences shape you and shape your writing? I would not be a writer today without the experience of exile. Uh, Having to leave everything behind and start again in another place uh, made me very aware of memory, of everything that I had lost, the people that had been um, displaced and scattered all over the world, those who had disappeared, those who had died. And all the, 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 the things that made me a person that were no longer there. And I have to reinvent myself. And in the process, um, I wrote this first novel, um, The House of the Spirits, which was an exercise in memory, in nostalgia, in trying to recover all the losses. That's oh, really powerful. Your work has so much the of the autobiographical element to it, but also has this magical or mystical element to it. Where does that come from within you? I had a crazy grandmother. She, <laughs> my, grandma, my grandmother was, all her short life, experimenting with, with the paranormal. So, for example, every Thursday there would be seances at home mm. where she would call the spirits. And according to the legend, she could move the, the ashtray without touching it. <laughs> Who knows? And there, there was the table of the spirits, which I have now in my house, that is a very heavy oak table from Spain that also, according to the legend, she could move with the force of her mind. I need two people to move the table. <laughs> and I have never seen it sh- even shake a little bit. And um, so I grew up with the idea that the world is a mysterious, magical place. And in my life, I have seen so many things that have no explanation. Like what? 
coincidences, prophetic dreams, mm. destiny. Mm. Why are you thrown in a certain direction mm. when you never thought you would go that way? Mm. And there is something magical about this journey of life. The story along Petal of the Sea feels very relevant today, right? Because we've been watching major immigration moves, not only in the United States, but other parts of the world, like Europe and Africa. Is there a connection between your experiences and the stories you write and what's happening today? Was that intentional? I only write about things that I care for, things that I'm trying to understand, circumstances that I'm trying to explore, people that are interesting. And the people who are interesting usually are people who are who have been in extreme situations and have brought out from inside resilience and strength that in normal times we don't need to use. So we don't know we don't know we have that inside. Would you elaborate on how those extreme situations help make people interesting? What do you mean by that? I have a foundation and the mission of my foundation is to invest in the power of women and girls. And I get to see extraordinary people. For example, people, women who have gone through horrible things in Congo. They have been tortured, mutilated, uh, gang raped. They have fistulas that cannot be operated on. And these women who are totally traumatized and beaten up by life mm. get up on their feet. Mm. And they not only keep on living, mm -hmm. they dance. They right. go back to their communities, and some of them become leaders in their communities. So that's the kind of people that I want to write about. Because unless you are tested, how do you know who you are? That's so true. I mean, that leads me to my next question, because I was wondering, despite all of the moving around and upheaval you had in your life, how did you figure out your true self and your identity? I don't know my true self. Mm. I, the true self changes in life, there are periods in life in which you are a different person. Am I the same person I was when I was a young mother? There are certain essential things that you carry on all your life. But, but circumstances and, and age makes you change. I think that now I see, I'm 77 now. So I, I look back at my life and I can have a better idea of who I was in different moments and the person I am today. Mm. Today, I feel like a teenager again. How does that come about, that feeling of well, a teenager? Well, first, thank God, I'm very healthy. Mm. And now I'm in love. So um, when, when people ask me, well, how is it to fall in love at your age? It's the same as falling in love when you are a teenager, but with a sense of urgency. You have no time to waste. Mm. No time for pettiness, for jealousy, for little gains, for, the, for intolerance, for impatience. Uh -huh. Because you have, how, how many years do wow. I have with Roger? Maybe five, six, seven. If we are lucky, mm. let's enjoy it. If I had known this when I was young, I wouldn't have two divorces in my past. So interesting. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. So like we said in the beginning, you have sold more than 74 million copies of your books worldwide. Where are the $74 million? That's my question. <laughs> so, how did your financial life change? It didn't immediately because my husband at the time was broke. He, he mm -hmm. went bankrupt and with great debt. Oh. So uh, the income of the House of the Spirits for the first few years went to pay debts. 
and to live, of course. So I didn't see much of a change. But in my lifetime, I have seen what it means to have resources. Um, not only all the people you can help. I, I could, for example, support my parents to have a splendid old age. Mm. And that's something I would not have been able to do without the success of the books. And the foundation is also what, what gives me most joy. But my life is very simple. I live in a very small house with one bedroom. I drive a small car. I don't, um, I don't collect anything. I, don't, I have learned, because I have started from scratch so many times, that things don't matter at all. You know, when I left Chile after the military coup, we just closed the house and left with the idea that we would come back. We never thought the dictatorship would last 17 years. Mm. And, of course, everything disappeared. And I, you never recover it. Really, Veronica, I don't remember what was in that place. Wow. Any of the stuff of the time. Mm. And then I left again when I left Venezuela. I don't remember either. So the objects that, that, are, that you leave on, on the journey don't matter at all. The only thing that matters is people. Coming up, Isabel explains the money lesson she learned after the success of her first book, her advice for other female authors, and what she still wants to accomplish. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. When you wrote your first book, did you do any of those contract negotiations yourself? No. No? I had an agent, and I don't even read the contracts to this day. Really? Uh, the contracts come in, and uh, I assume the agency has gone through them. And then my son and my daughter-in-law, who are the pillars of my life, they take care of that. I don't read the contracts. Because not only it's, it's not that I don't care, it's that I most of the time I don't even understand them. Hmm. And I don't have anything to compare them with. The only thing that matters to me is when is the termination date. Mm. Because I don't want to sign a contract that is almost forever, as I did with the House of the Spirits in the United States. I, I uh, signed a contract for the House of the Spirits with minimal, minimum money forever. And it, has, it took years and years to renegotiate the book back, to get back the copyright. And how did you do that? that the, would... agent, the agent did it. I see. How did you figure out how much to be paid? Did you just sort of um, trust the agent with that process as well, that you were going to get paid fairly for all of your work? Well, I just learned that I am the, the writer that sells m most books in Spanish, yet I'm not the best paid. Mm. Some men are better paid mm -hmm. than me. And that, I just learned that. And that's making me very angry, mm. not because of the money, but because the fact that I'm paid less, probably because I'm a woman. Oh. And so that I'm not going to tolerate. So, yeah. So going forward, I mean, how do you rectify that? Well, you fight for it. Fight for it. Uh, you fight for it and you, you look for another publisher if you don't get what you want. 
but I am in a very privileged situation because I can, I can do that. Most people cannot. That's really difficult. So it sounds like that's some advice for female writers. Everything is secretive and uh, confidential. And then uh, unless you are lucky, you don't find out how much other people are paid. And then if you are not really an absolute bestseller, you have no leverage to, con- to fight for anything. You said that one of the benefits of having resources is being able to help other people. And you mentioned your foundation that you set up in honor of your daughter. Can you walk us through how you decided on a foundation? My daughter um, was 28 years old when she had a crisis and ended up in a hospital in Madrid. In Madrid, yes, and they gave her the wrong drugs. There was neglect in the intensive care unit, and they, well, she ended up with severe brain damage in a, in a coma. And they tried to hide it in the hospital. Five months later, they gave me back my daughter, who was practically a corpse. This was before 9-11, so I was able to get my daughter in a commercial United flight with a nurse and oxygen and all the paraphernalia that a person in coma needs and bring her over to the United States all the way to California, connecting flights in Washington and, um, and take care of her at home until she died. And when she died, I wrote a book called Paula, which is the story of the family, the story of the country, everything, and her story also. And the book was very well received. It's, it's not a sad book, although it's a book about her death. And uh, so I, I said, all the income that comes from this book, I won't touch because it's not mine. It belongs to Paula. And then I put it in a, in a bank account, and in a trip in India, something, something happened that made me realize this is what I want to do. This is what Paula would have done with this money. And so I created a foundation and the mission of the foundation is to invest in the power of women and girls. And we work now because of everything that is happening in this country. We have had to focus much more. And so now we focus on reproductive rights, which are threatened, uh, on immigration, women and girls and, and children. And... Um, try to protect women from exploitation and harassment, abuse. How did you emotionally survive everything you went through with your daughter's death? I'm so sorry. How did you find the strength to keep going during that time? I, I don't think I had an alternative. What do you do? Are you going to commit suicide? Some people do, but most people don't. Most people survive sorrow, and most people keep on living. Um, I, I, I would... If I look back, I would say that what saved me mostly was love, the love of my mother that was always present. She just died and very old. Um, The love of my son, Nicolas, and three grandchildren that were born at that time. So when you have babies, Paula died with two of of, of my grandchildren, on her bed. Mm. They were sleeping. They were having their siesta at her feet. Mm. So um, we took care of Paula in the family room. And th- the kids somehow saw their, their aunt in that bed like, like the sleeping beauty 
And they never questioned it. It was so natural for them. They would play with their toys on the bed, and there was a cat there. And so uh, in a way, I think that saved me, the, the f- seeing how life continues in spite of everything. And your mom had said something to encourage you too, right? My mother, we wrote to each other every single day for decades. Mm-hmm. I have 24,000 letters from my mother in boxes by year in a, in a garage, actually. <laughs> and um, I know there are 24,000 because uh, recently we had to archive them because some of them were getting deteriorated. And so um, in the process, we more or less found out how many there are. It's not an exact number, but it's approximate. And my mother, when I was in Spain with Paula, I wrote to my mother every day, as I usually did. And at the end of the year, when Paula died, she gave me back my letters. And with, based on those letters, I could write that memoir, because in my mind, everything was just a dark night, until I read the letters and saw what had happened day by day. And my mother said, what are you going to write on January 8th? Because I start all my books on January 8th. Paula had died a month before. And I said, Mama, I don't think I can write. And she said, well, if you don't write, you will die. And let me tell you, this is the worst thing that can happen. This is a long, long, dark tunnel that you have to walk alone, Mm -hmm. one step at a time, tear after tear but you will get to the end. I promise you will. Just keep walking. Mm. And nothing helps. No Prozac, no therapy, no vacations in Hawaii. Nothing helps. You have to live the pain. And then she said, she added something that was absolutely true. She said, nothing that happens in the future to you will be comparable. You've already survived the worst. Shifting gears a bit, uh, we want to talk about something some people say you shouldn't talk about with women, and that is, of course, their age. Oh, I have no problem with I am so proud to be 77 and alive and still in the world. What's one thing you think young women don't understand about aging that maybe they should consider? That it's not a frightening thing, that it, go, it happens slowly, and you adapt to each stage. And every, every age has its perks and its problems. Um, I was talking with my daughter-in-law, who's a pretty woman, and she said, at 45, I became invisible. And I realized that when I walk in the streets, people were looking at my daughter or at my husband and, um, and not at me anymore. And at the beginning, it was like a shock, she said. But then it was so so wonderful. It's comfortable. It's great. I don't have to worry about so many things. I'm not trying to be sexy or to compete with anybody. Well, my case is different. I never wanted to be invisible, and I always was. So I never had the problem of becoming invisible. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I I feel good about my age, and and I keep telling everybody I'm 77 because I'm proud of the life I have had. And um, the fact that I'm healthy, that I'm curious, that I am engaged, that I can climb the stairs, that all that, and fall in love, all that is just great. Isabel, if you had a pick, what is your favorite benefit of aging? That you know what you are not going to do. You learn to say no. No to 
other people know to things that you think of yourself. No, you say you say to the to the super ego, leave me alone. Just I would say it with the F word, off. <laughs> Because it's, it's now I, I don't care about what other people think, about what my superego is flagellating me with. I say no. And I, I know about myself what I can do and what I cannot. I don't even try to do things just because everybody else does them. I love it. That's great. <laughs> so what motivates you to keep working? Because you're still very prolific. Well, I love the, my, my work. I love telling stories. Uh, <sighs> That, that when I sit down to write the first sentence of, of a new book, I say to the spirits, wait, I'm going to tell you a story. And that's the beginning for me of, of the process. I'm going to tell you a story. I love it. I love the telling. I love hearing stories. I have audiobooks in the car. And just hearing the voice of someone telling me a story is, is wonderful. So that that keeps me going. The foundation keeps me going. And of course, the fact that that I have this wonderful little family, my son, my daughter-in-law, who travels with me, and she's my boss. She's (laughs) tough. And so I do all these book tours like a poodle on a leash. You know, she carries me around. And um, now I have a husband that I love. So all that keeps me going. What's your writing process still? I start on a certain date. And I write many hours a day. I don't want to be interrupted because it's like dancing. You start dancing and you get the rhythm, you get the, the, the groove, you know. And um, with writing, it's the same. You, if you interrupt, you have to start again to get the rim, rhythm again. So I work many hours. Like eight, ten? Yeah, yeah. easily uh-huh. eight. Uh-huh. And, but before I could write much more. Now I can't even sit for that long. But now I stop when Roger comes home. That's the time to stop. Mm, That's great. So what would you still like to accomplish? I just want to live today and maybe tomorrow. And I don't want to be a widow. I hope to die before Roger does. And that's it. This was amazing. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. If you'd like to hear more of Secrets of Wealthy Women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thank you for listening. The Claude Three Model Family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective, Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.